Hello and welcome to For the Love of Sports. My name is Michael Rozeal and today I have the incredible, the amazing, the legend, Brandon Steiner. Brandon, how are you today? I'm feeling well. You know, it's, I feel like today's, you know, first day of people going back to work in New York. There's a little excitement in the air and it's, it's a positive excitement for a change. And, um, you know, maybe this is the beginning of a good run here. We need it. We need a little run. We need sports back. Certainly for more reasons than one. I'm excited. Yeah, I'm going to talk to my wife on a regular basis. This has been troublesome. You know, with no sports, I got to watch the things that she likes. I don't even have an excuse to go in the other room now. Yeah, I right. Watch that something is, else. That's true. You can't even say like, oh, no, the game's on. Let me go downstairs. Nope, no game's on. You, no say, game's you on. don't watch the game, do you? No. Okay, well, I'm going to watch the game for a while, then I'll hook up with you in a while. And we, that's gives my separation time. But now I, even, I watch TV with my wife. Goodness. Some good you're TV a, shows on, though. Uh, you're a brave man. Let me just say that, Brandon. You're a very brave man, and I respect the heck out of you for it. But, no, I'm excited. You know, obviously, you and I got to speak a couple months ago. That was an absolute blast, and that was kind of at the beginning of all this. And now, I'm not going to say it's the end, but at least we're starting no. to see that lead at the end of the tunnel a little bit. We can start to see what's going on, how things are moving. As you said, people going back to work, which is nice. Sports eventually coming back. We have some golf this weekend, if I'm not mistaken, so very excited about that. But, Brandon, the first question I have for everybody on the For the Love of Sports podcast is, why do you love sports so much? I love co- I love competing. I love the competition. I love what you can learn from sports. I've always been a slow learner. So I'm able to learn from sports, you know, even from a work ethic standpoint, a strategy standpoint, the camaraderie, teamwork, you know, a lot of that stuff in sports, starting with the competition and that competitive spirit about winning. I think there's nothing better than winning. And I think it's, I think a lot of stuff carries over to life. I, I just think there's so many different things that just can I can watch a game, go to a game, believe in something for an hour and twenty minutes, and then kind of let it go. But anything carries over into my business life and personal life sometimes. Believing in something that sounds like uh, I would say that when I'm watching my Mets during the year, we'll see how that goes. Hopefully, everything figures itself I out. I thought you guys were in good time. shape this year, but you know they've been t- saying that for the last nineteen years. So yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No need to remind me on that one. I appreciate you. Uh Thank you. Thank you, Brandon. I appreciate that. So you brought up something. You said there's nothing better than winning, but there's also nothing worse than losing, in my opinion. How did you learn how to lose? How did you learn how to fail to make sure that you were coming back stronger, not just kind of sitting and moping and and being a little depressed after you have that huge loss? I didn't learn how to lose. I'm a horrible loser. I, I probably still have a little work to be done, but I also know that, you know, I don't think losing is the opposite of winning. I think it's a big part of winning is losing. And I think I've learned that now with losing, if you want to win a lot, you have to be prepared to do it. So losing, nobody's going 150 and zero. Nobody goes undefeated other than the Miami dolphins. I, I think, you don't go undefeated in your marriage you don't go undefeated. You're going to lose some battles. Not have to lose almost all the battles with my wife. But at the end of the day, you know, it's all part of a process that I hope will get you somewhere. I'm not a really particularly good loser, which is what motivates me to win so much, is how much I hate losing. I don't think it's a win at all costs. You know, I hear a lot of players say, if we don't win the World Series, if we don't win the Super Bowl, this is a lost season. Like, I don't believe in that. I think there's a lot to be gotten out of the grind and the process. And if you don't have the end-all, win-all, and you still have a chance to do it again, then it's not that bad a loss. But I understand why you can grind out a whole year and not hit your number and feel like you know, it would be detrimental or grind a whole year and lose in Game 7 of the World Series. It can be tough. But it's all – I mean, it's all fun. It's all fun. It's all just a game. And you got to remember that, you know, at the end of the game, all the pieces get put in the box. So, you know, you got to be careful about getting too caught up in the winning and losing and turn the volume up on your gratitude. Because win or lose, what do you really have? Most of us have a lot to be grateful for. And the winning and losing is really more the icing on the cake. Very well said. I right? think- we're here, man. I yeah. mean, we're here. And if you're healthy and you got some friends and you got some, you know, job, I mean, that's, that's pretty good. Maybe you didn't get the promotion, but still, still pretty good. You know, it's having still- a job, especially today, right today, I mean, you know, a lot of people don't have jobs. Like, so having a job and having a company that cares about you and having a family, I mean, those are, those are really important things in, in, in winning. 
winning's nice though. Losing sucks. Winning's nice, but I agree with you. They're not quite opposite, especially if you have those other things that you can look around and be grateful for. Sounds like you've been able to do that a little bit during your life. I know this is going to sound really cliche, but I'm going to say it because I remember hearing this a lot when I was younger. But you know, so I used to play Monopoly with all my friends, and very, very rarely did I lose a Monopoly game. Um, and and never let my family win. I mean, I'm a very good Monopoly player, and, and I used to win. And then, sure enough, I'm like, I'm sitting on the sidelines while my friends are playing for another hour and a half. So how good was winning? And I think it's true. Like, listen, it's great to compete. It's great to win. But when you're com- when you're, I call it pop. You know, pro- progress on your process. When you're improving and gr- you know, that's when you're happy. When you're in the middle of process and you're getting better every day and you're growing, you're challenged, that's happy. Winning isn't necessarily always happy because it's usually the end of a goal and you've got to be quick to reset, which you see the great ones are. Like they're winning, it's never enough. It's almost like a sip of water. You know, we need a gallon of water. So I think it's really important that having won a bunch of, you know, pretty big battles over business and, and, and having won some of the game of business having made a lot of money and having a brand that's been meaningful. The process now back in it again, even though people say, wow, you, know, you had your company, you built it for 30 years, and then it kind of got taken out from underneath me. Yeah, I mean, that's a that's a left hook, man, in the jaw. But now that I'm back in the process, grinding and, and figuring it out again, I mean, there's a lot of fun and joy in that as opposed to just making more money and doing the same old. So I'm really enjoying the disruption and, and looking at my business completely different. Back in Brooklyn, we call that a do-over. They don't use the do-over concept in sports enough. Like, screw the damn instant replays. Like, we need to just go do-over. You know something? That play looked really close. We're going to do it over. That's how we got stuff straightened out. We didn't have any delays. We either flipped the coin, and if it was a really, really big play, we just did it over. I don't know why they incorporate that into sports. The do-over. I love that. I like the concept, but I would say with uh, um, sports betting now a little bit closer to the top, uh, closer to the surface, it might be a little difficult to uh, to have a couple people swallow that pill on either side of the bet, whichever side. Here's you're my on. question to your audience. There we go. How big is sports betting going to be, especially if you can't go to games the next six months? I know I'm getting ramped up. I am betting on everything. I'll have more fun at home. I figured a couple hundred hours I'm saving on the ticket. There's got to be some prop bets in there for me just to make it interesting. There and always I think it's going to go through the roof. I was down on the sports game at the beginning because I know what's going to happen in the long run. You know, a player, an umpire, somebody's going to be in trouble, and it's going to be a problem. So that's just inevitable. As long as we're prepared to knowing that that could leak into sports. They could say anything you want, but the security of authentic sports is definitely in jeopardy because, you know, when you do things that are a little questionable, which gambling is really, there should be no need to gamble. I'm liking the gamble just because we add excitement to it, whether I win or lose. I just, now it makes the competition even steeper. I'm rooting in the ninth inning. I'm rooting who's going to score the first run, whether this pitch is going to have 10 strikeouts or less or more. But I think it's going to, it will at some point disrupt some of the sports because somebody will be in trouble with money and be a way to get the money back. It, it will happen. I mean, it's happened already and it wasn't legal. I mean, now that even more people are able to be in on it and, and see what's going on and be around it. I do agree with you. I think it's going to get yeah. a little bit more out there, yeah. which is unfortunate, but I'm excited for it. I'm excited for real sports to come back. We have PGA this weekend as a recording, which should be a lot of fun. I don't know who I'm putting my money on, but I'm putting my money on someone, as you said, just because we need that engagement. It just boosts it so much. Um, and you said a couple different things there that I'd love to just touch on for a second. So one thing was that you, you, you fall in love with the process, your POP, your pop. And I really like that. How long did it take you to realize that when you tie your happiness and emotions to an outcome, it's usually detrimental because if you get it or you don't get it, you're never satisfied because you're just looking for the next thing. How long did it take you to kind of realize that? And then, as you said, really start tying it to the process rather than that outcome. I've been on that for a while, almost since I'm a kid. I mean, think about it. Like, I, I think I really hit home when I, when I, when I, at 40, when I sold my company for a lot of money and I realized I wasn't that happy. I talk a lot about that in my third book, Living on Purpose. It's like, think about it. It's like getting what you want. I mean, it's, it's, there's some satisfaction and a confidence to it. But the next thing is now what? 
So the process, you know, when you're growing and you're challenged in your, whether it be in a relationship, right? You know, people say, well, my relationship is, yeah, we went separate ways. Didn't have to be, but like, you have to keep challenging each other. You have to keep growing with each other. And that takes work. It's the same thing with your business. Like the worst thing in the world is I'm good. You know, you're making a good amount of money. You got your hours down. That's a formula for boredom and unhappiness. Like you go to work because you can't wait to get to work and because you're not sure what you're going to get hit with. And every day you just don't seem to even have enough time. That That's fulfilling. So I think, you know, when you're getting better, and I, I really learned that at a young age when I started making some more longer-term decisions because I knew that happiness would come more in the long term. And I remember I was... Uh, I was debating whether to go work for my friend who was a neighbor. He was going to pay me $20 cash. Cash. Wow. 20. Woo. $20 <laughs> cash a day. That was like the lottery, you know, $120 a week cash. And all I had to do is I was working in his variety store in downtown, which he would drive me, no transportation expense, and he always bought me lunch. So I was walking home with $20 cash a day, which was a lot of money back in, you know, 1971, no, 73. This was 73. And then I had this job offer to work up in up in the summer camp as a dishwasher for $150 for the whole summer. And my day started at 6 a.m. and ended at 7 p.m. with an hour and a half break, washing dishes then as a cook's helper. And I took the $150 for the summer because... I knew that I'd be an apprentice to learn how to cook. And somebody was going to show me how to cook and make all these different things. And, and it was challenging. It was going to be something I didn't know a lot about. And uh, that ended up being the right decision because that $150 for the whole summer turned into $3,000 for the whole summer. As I went to college, six years later, I was the number two guy in the kitchen overseeing the kitchen. And I now not only was making good money while I went to college, but also I had a, a backup career if everything went kind of with the accounting thing and the business thing didn't work. I know I can go work as a cook or a chef in a kitchen. So, you know, long-term happiness is, is when you're improving, you have to be committed. You don't always make the right decisions, but you have to be committed. I tell a lot of kids that are graduating school, like you have to get committed to just learning more. When you graduate college is when the education really starts. It's really important. Like now, you now know how important learning is. You have the foundation for learning, hopefully, and now is when the real education can start. And you can't feel like just because you went to school for twelve years that your education and learning is over. You're just getting started. And I think that you have to look at your life that way. I'm sixty now, and I really don't feel like I know anything. I just feel like, and I cannot believe it. I'm like a tech guy now. So every day is a challenge of learning how this tech stuff works and these apps and these all the social media, which I've been on for a while, but even taking it to another level, because if you don't, you're going to be left behind or you got to retire. It's so true. You really do have to make sure that you're always looking forward and, and playing that long term game. But it's a lot harder said than done. Right. If you went to most kids in that situation and we'll even use today's numbers, let's call it. 200 and 200 bucks a week and uh, 250 or 300 bucks for that entire summer. Most people would obviously take the $200 a week. Um, now, there's also other sides to that story. Maybe you could have taken some lessons or, you know, become a chef in a different way. But I understand where you're coming from and how it happened. And I know from our first conversation that that was something that was very important to you working in a, in a hotel um, as well, if I'm not mistaken, or a restaurant. So yeah. Again, it so was, I'm it sitting was at the table. Sorry, I got me interrupted. Sorry about no, that. This is your show, man. Just come on. So you're I'm good. sitting at the table with my kids and I say to them, this is a few years back, but they were like 13 and 15. I say, listen, you got a choice. I got a lottery ticket here. You scratch this lottery ticket off now, and I guarantee you today that you are going to be incredibly rich and successful. As of today, you hit the lottery, boom. Here's the lottery ticket. You scratch it, go casting your chips. I got this other lottery ticket that says you scratch it, if you work really hard, you're diligent, you go to work in it to win it, study hard, and in between 15 and 20 years, you're going to be incredibly rich and successful. Which lottery ticket do you want? And I my kids like turned around and said, I want that immediately. I got to take the bird in the hand. And I said, you're missing the entire fun of it all. 
there's nothing like earning it. So I remember when I was a kid, and lottery was just coming out. We were about 16 at the time. And we went to my friend Cliff Savage. We went to Burger King, which was another big thing. Was that would just come out. Burger King was huge. And to go get Burger King, get a Whopper was a huge deal. So on the way to get the Whopper, we see this, uh, you know, this little candy store. We sell lottery tickets. At that time, you can win a million dollars. So my friend goes in and he starts buying some lottery tickets. I had no money. He's like, you want to buy some lottery tickets? No, I don't want to buy any. He goes, I'll tell you what, I'll pay for them. I'll pay for your lottery tickets. I said, no, I don't want them. Do not buy my lottery tickets. Even if I don't have to pay for them, I don't want them. So we go get the Whopper. We're sitting down at Burger King. We're talking. He goes, I don't get it. Like, I was going to pay for the lottery tickets. We're just having some fun. I'm like, I don't want the lottery tickets. Because I don't want to win. I don't want it. And this is a kid that's poor, didn't have a lot of money or no money, and did not want the lottery tickets for free. So I'm like, I don't want to win that way. I don't want to go down that I was some kid who won the lottery ticket. And that's how I became successful and wealthy. I don't, I don't want to, I want it to go down. And I think about that story. That's crazy. Even to have that mindset, but to turn around and say, I do not want you to buy those lottery tickets. I don't want to win. And I never played the lottery up until maybe about uh, 10 years ago, just for fun. We were on a, we were on a trip on a highway and I bought a bunch of lottery tickets, but like, you got to really think about that mindset. My kids flipped out when I told them that story, because you got to really want to, there's nothing better and more fulfilling than going, doing something, starting something or building something yourself and growing and challenge and doing it. And to go have it just handed to you or inherited, there's nothing wrong with it, but it's definitely not, it wasn't my, the way I wanted to do it. I respect that. But man, that is crazy. Yeah, 100%. Crazy. I'm, I'm on your kid's side there, man. I mean, especially now knowing what you've been able to do with you know money that you've made, just think if you just kind of injected a million bucks in cash in the beginning, look how much further you'd be. But Maybe. I understand where you're coming from. I know, I'm You know how hard it is to make that first million? Uh, no, I'm Which not there the yet. the biggest challenge, you know, to make the, listen, wealth is interesting. And, and, and I love, that's why I love the show All American, because it shows wealth, poor versus rich. And it really outlays the advantages of both and disadvantages. Because everybody thinks it's so advantageous to be rich. I love the job they do in that show because it really outlines the ups and downs of having a lot of money and coming from wealth and living in a little bit of an advantageous situation. And the same thing, there are disadvantages and, and advantages of living poor. Uh, growing up poor and then raising my kids somewhat wealthy, it's really challenging. But, you know, I don't, I don't have any regrets about turning that money down or, or not having that money, like the process of knowing how to start with a dollar, literally, and to make the first million to figure out how to take a dollar and turn it into two is the whole lesson that so many people miss. You want to make a million dollars, learn how to take one dollar and turn it into two. But most people are trying to figure out how to make a million. I'm just trying to figure out how to turn this 20 into 40. Like you got it, that concept is what leads you to a million, not trying to figure out how to make a million. And it's so important. I wish, I mean, I wish there is a class in every high school about how to make a dollar, how to make one dollar, which is the key, understanding the value of a dollar and how to take a dollar and turning it to two is really the key lesson there that I think a lot of people miss because they're so gung ho about making a million. Sounds like a nice course that you can create. And uh, now with everybody stuck at home, maybe they'd be able to watch it. So I don't know. Yeah. If you need, if you need someone about doing to, some online teaching. I'm I'll, thinking about it. I'll help fund that venture. How's that sound? I think that's my way to make a dollar and turn to two. Does that sound good? See, here we go. Going through the process. And from process comes incredible progress and ideas. Here we go. How, how about it's this? True. You can you could do all the talking. We'll use my face and we'll just roll from there. Sounds good. I like that. That's fine. You're, you're much younger, better looking than me. Yeah, just a couple years. Idea. Just a couple. We both got haircuts. I think that's the most important part. But Brandon, you you talk about this concept of turning one dollar into two, and we you know we've been kind of talking just in generalities here. I want to talk a little bit more about the business. Obviously, Steiner Sports is one of the most well known um, businesses, agencies here in the New York City area. Especially if you know anything about New York sports, you've done an incredible job at building up that name. You brought it up a little bit earlier, you know, kind of swooped in and someone gave you a left hook to the face there. And that's an unfortunate situation. So we don't need to dive too deep into that. But I do want to talk about the building of Steiner Sports. I think, again, you know, me uh, in like early 2000s, so, you know, this is nine, 10 year old Mike. I knew the name Steiner. I didn't know who you were or what you did or or why you were important. But anytime someone said Mariano Rivera, 
your name was either before, during, or after it. So you clearly did a lot of things, especially here in the New York City area. So I, I want to learn. Teach, teach me, teach us. How did you turn that one dollar into two, and that two into four by adding value and helping out? You know these incredible Major League Baseball and and NHL and, and NFL athletes. And that's a good question. I think for starters, you know, you got to figure out how you can add value. I'm going through it now. You know, I have a new company, Collectible Exchange and Steiner Agency. I'm not with Steiner anymore. And I'm back to that. How do I turn a dollar into two? Now, granted, I'm not coming to work every day figuring out how I'm going to feed my family anymore. And that's what people would say. Well, you've made a lot of money, so it must be easy. But it's not. When you're competing, whether you got a $50 million contract or a $5 million or whatever, you ask these people, oh, you got the big contract. doesn't matter. When the competition button goes on, the light switch, I feel like I'm that poor kid back in Brooklyn again. So that's the first thing is you must play the game behind, behind the game, the game within the game. The game is I'm an underdog. I have nothing. I have a high level of not accepting having nothing. And my level of non-acceptance drives me to make my nothing into something. And I know it's hard. To, I'm hoping I can communicate that right. But I hate to say this because you know I have made a lot of money. I probably don't have to work, but I do live every day now. Like I gotta make this thing, or I'm gonna die. You know, I feel like I have a gun in my head. I feel like there's that kind of urgency. And my definition of urgency, by the way, is definition of urgency is now. <laughs> Period. Mm-hmm. You know, and the v- definition of value is what you can do for someone they can't do for themselves. So there's an urgency now to create value for someone who needs my help. That's how you take $1. You find somebody that needs something that you have and make sure that what you have is valuable, that you can monetize and not be greedy and figure out how you can service that person. You may have all these other ideas and everything, which is fine, but it needs to be a solution and it needs to be a service, a product that helps somebody solve a problem. So I think then, you know, when you're starting a business, whatever it is from, you know, you got to remember who your customer is. So when you talk about making your first dollar, you figure out who your customer is and what the problem is. And if I convince one person at a time that they need this solution. I know that sounds crazy, but because people always laugh at me, like I'd be outside my store, shaking hands, signing my book, thanking people for shopping. Like, Brandon, are you kidding? But hey, got to thank one person at a time. Be grateful. Have gratitude. At the same time, while you're meeting those people, now I'm doing a customer survey. The customer survey thing that people send out drives me crazy. It's such bull. I get these surveys and email. What do you think of whatever? You want to know what I think? I think you should get on the phone and call me. That's if you want to know what I think. Why should I think? I mean, it's like, and, and first of all, who cares what I think? If, I, if you were surveying people back 150 years ago about what they thought about, you know, uh, maybe having a, an automobile. They would have said, you don't need an automobile. You just need to have maybe the carriage needs to be more comfortable or you need faster horses. That's what people would have said. If actually all those people before they started making cars actually send out a survey, we'd still be in horses and fancier carriages and the horses were a little faster. So you can't always just listen to your customers. You need to go out and get involved with what your customers are doing. That's why I always showed up at my store. I always show up at games trying to learn and see what people are doing and see what's going on. I go to supermarkets all the time. What are people buying? Go to department stores. What are they buying? What are the colors? What are people thinking? What are they doing? That's my surveying. You know, tendencies. Like, they have all these analytics. It's another thing that just drives me crazy. We see the analytics. I'm like, there's so many factors that go into analytics, even though they're always coming up with more. But and back in my day, we called those tendencies. People are tending to wear pink people are tending to wear baseball caps i mean you can see it just go to a ball game you don't need a whole analytics study you see like nine out of ten people wearing a baseball cap all right we need to get more caps into the stores so i think there's a lot to be said about common sense and instinct to go back to your question about the dollar like you know raise the volume up on your gut and your instinct but also don't be afraid to sample i'm not saying bet when you're trying to make a dollar don't put all hundred pennies on one concept right away sample it just because your gut tells you something doesn't mean you can't sample it i call that don't be sos be stuck on stupid and a lot of times people you know i always say dream big sample small and fail quick it's okay to dream big it's okay to then to trust your gut but sample it 
And then if your idea sucks, decide you want to be resilient and make an adjustment or walk away because your idea sucked. And believe me, I've seen a lot of bad ideas. I've seen a lot of good ideas executed poorly. So, you know, you got to decide if you have a really good idea, maybe you execute it right. Can you get some people around you that you trust that can give you some honest feedback? Not a survey, but get some people to know what they're doing to tell you the truth. So a lot of the times the decision makers are surrounded by people that don't want to upset them and tell them what they don't want to hear. Because that's that's a pretty big, you know, you, there, there, that line of delineation, you know, is it is it a good idea or a bad idea? Well, who who's to say what's a good idea? Is it is it a good idea with poor execution or is it a bad idea that you're executing well enough that it's still kind of staying afloat? As you said, you've seen a lot of bad ideas and you've seen a lot of good with poor execution. How how do you surround yourself with those correct people to tell you if that idea sucks? How do you make sure that it's you're looking at it objectively and not just, hey, this was my idea, so I think it's great and I want to make it successful? Well, maybe, Mike, you should probably calm down and, and ask Brandon what he thinks because he might have a good idea for you as well. Well, I think execution breeds strategy for lunch. I mean, you got to, I mean, I think a lot of people put more emphasis on strategy and on concept than they do on execution. And, you know, execution beats strategy for lunch every time. A friend of mine, Joe Pomeri, told me that. And it's true. I think that a lot of big thinkers, a lot of big ideas don't roll up their sleeves and think about what the execution is going to be like, what you need to go make that happen. Mm -hmm. And that's hence a lot of reasons why ideas don't come and, and fail. Uh, those big ideas end up getting caught up with the raising of the money as opposed to raising the level of how we're going to do this. But I think it is important to have certain people that are accountable, that are just bright, don't have that much skin in the game that can tell you the truth. Most of your really highly successful CEOs and business people particularly have that one or two people that will tell them or find someone who can tell them that they can trust of what they really think of this idea and what's possibly missing. And to be a great uh, business owner or a CEO or a manager of a large business, I think one of the most important traits, although there are many, you got to step outside yourself and see yourself. You got to be able to set yourself up to be two people. You got to be step outside and say, wait a minute, what's really going on here? Because the people around you aren't always going to tell you because you know, you're their boss. So you got to be able to step outside yourself and see the real reality of it and see the hanger honors and, and, and just who are the naysayers or just the people are going to tell you what you want to hear. And the, the good, the good CEOs step outside themselves. The really good parents that really want to raise great kids, they step outside themselves. Sometimes they realize they got to love their kids a little less and they got to see their kids for who they really are. And that's kind of what you got to do with your business. You know, Oh, not my kid. No, no, no. My kid was never drinking. Like we caught my daughter. My daughter's going to kill me if she ever sees it. We caught my daughter at a really young age drinking beer. So the first thing she hits me, because it's on Facebook, wasn't even that, that investigator. So the first thing I said to her, I said, Nicole, what was going on? Oh, it was my first time I was ever drinking. I'm like, Nicole, I already copyrighted that line. This is only my first time thing. Like, that's not going to fly. All right, please. And, and on top of that, there's like 30 beer cans on. There's only three of you. Nobody drinks like 30 beers the first time you're drinking beer. But let's move that aside. So we call, we see the other girl, her friends in the picture. We start calling some of the parents and we say, we have a picture of your daughter with like a case of beer with only like four or five girls. Not my daughter. She was like the one that wasn't drinking. Okay. Yeah. Your daughter. Right. Right. Your daughter was hanging out with four other girls. It's like 30 beer cans and your daughter, your one girl wasn't drinking. You have to be able to see your kids for who they really are. And sometimes you got to love your kids a little less you got to see your idea for what it really is. And sometimes you got to love your idea a little less. you got to be hard on yourself and your idea if you really love it. And, and sometimes that love is hard, tough love. And it's tough. It's misery to fail. It's misery to put your life and your work and money into something and miss. Like the guy who's shooting in the corner at the game's on the line and clanks off the back of the rim after he's taken that shot 10 million times. But sometimes it's just not in the cards. The timing's wrong. Your idea may not have nothing to do with anybody. you got to pick yourself up and come up with the next best idea. And so when, when did you realize that what you were doing with Steiner Sports and obviously now what you're doing with the Steiner Agency and Collectible Exchange, at what point in each of these businesses did you kind of have the self-awareness, be able to step outside and say, you know what I'm doing this is a pretty damn good idea. And I think we're going to revolutionize the sports marketing game a little bit. 
Um, I think it was in what happened is in, in 98, I asked my wife, I should say, I begged my wife to please come up. She was a CPA and I asked her to come up and help for a few months, but she had gotten a one year severance package from her job that had emerged. And, uh, you know, she comes up and you know she's killing me because, you know, it's like, you're not doing this. You're not doing that. And, and she was right. I mean, on everything, but you know, I'm, I'm starting up and trying to figure it out. And we needed more financing. So she helped me go to the bank and showed me how to do that because I wasn't really particularly good at the financing and getting, and I wasn't really big on borrowing money. And I just remember one day out of nowhere, so she was doing the accounting and, you know, really we didn't work together that much because stuff already starting to pop in the back end of the office and she was handling that. And I was just going out and selling and just making stuff happen. And one day she came to my office and said, I get it. I think you got something really, really special here. I think you got something that really, really has a, a a huge upside, and I finally get it. She had been with, she had been up, you know, she was with me since the start, but she had been up in that office probably about four or five months at that point, and she's like, "I get it," and uh, I, I, you know, and she's a pretty conservative, not a big sports fan, which was critical. So when she was like, "You got something here." That was the beginning of knowing that maybe this was not just going to be a business that was going to make me some money, but this was going to be something special. And uh, certainly was the beginning of, of a run for two reasons. One, it helps when your spouse gets behind you and sees your vision, especially how many times I came home and told her what I was thinking. And I could see she got a headache from it because I can't imagine she understood what I was talking about, that I was going to sell these autographs or I was going to book these athlete appearances. It was very confusing to a, to an intelligent, bright person, frankly. Because, you know, but sports fans aren't always that or, you know, they're fanatical and they, they have their own rhythm and their own lane, which is not always the center one. But so I, I knew that because I was one myself. You know, I would have cut my right arm off to go meet a player when I was a kid. So I always remember that. So I think that was like a big starting point. I think the big coming out party also I mean, there was a few of them. Like, when I, you know, when I signed Phil Rizzuto to my first contract to represent. It was a big, wow, I can't believe what I just did. And then when I did Yankee Steiner, you know, when I formed the first partnership with a team, even though I did the Cowboys, Red Sox, Dodgers, Notre Dame, Syracuse, Alabama. I mean, I went after them all. But when I did the first big one, which was the Yankees, I, I walked away from that going, wow. I just did a press conference with Joe Torre. Mariano and Jeter, and I haven't even invited those three guys. They came just to support me, which was just something I deeply to show. Tori, Mariano, and Jeter just came to a press conference to support me because they really wanted to get behind what I was doing. Like, wow. And I knew that was going to change the business. I mean, that's what it's all about. I knew when, when you go and you're doing something, you know, you're disrupting everything that's been done so far. They, you know, you're on the right track. And, and even though the dollars and some of the things don't always come initially, which I never really worried about, I know that stuff would come. That was, those were, those were big moments. It is very impressive. I mean, those three gentlemen. So again, you know, as we were busting chops earlier, I'm a very big Mets fan. And, uh, you know, you always have to kind of pay attention to what your older brother's doing on the other side of town. Right. So I always kind of knew what's going on and um, to have those three guys, support you as you said just because they wanted to support you not because you asked or not because there was a reason for it they just wanted to see you change the game i think is very impressive and it's a testament to how much value you were able to add to them as athletes as people as humans which i think is again you know going back to this entire conversation you add a lot of value and expertise and insight to somebody else they're going to give it back in some way shape or form yeah i think if you're a problem solver and a supporter what's funny is i did start my original company with the mets Back in the late 80s with Strawberry, Keith, Darling, Gooden, who I'm still friendly with to this day. And those guys, when I started the marketing business, remember the collectible started, didn't start till 94. When I started my first business, which was the marketing, which still continues, that's the Steiner Agency, marketing players and all that. That was all Mets. The Mets owned, owned this town. And like, you know, those guys were at my bachelor party and they were a great group. I mean, that, was, bachelor- that was the group I got started with. Hey. It was Keith Hernandez who told the guys to work with me. One second. My bachelor party's in like a month. So in case you or any of those Mets want to come, tell Keith. He's more than welcome to hang out in the Pokemon. That was pretty cool, though. You know, I have Keith and Straw and Darling at my bachelor party. It was really cool. I mean, I I have a good relationship with those guys. And I was just trying to, at those days, you know, the marketing of athletes was not as obvious as it is now. Nowhere near. So I was working really hard for them, coming up with money gigs. And that's when money mattered to players. I was doing their fan mail. (laughs) 
was opening up their fan mail and helping them go through it. And I was doing whatever it took just to get a relationship going with them and helping them any way I could. But how did you gain, how did you get those relationships initially, right? There had to have been one person off the bat that at least accepted and said, yeah, I think, you know, you know what? I mean, you're, you're relatively young at that point in time. Come on, kid. You know, you, you can come help me out. Who was that first player that really, I guess, set it all off for you? Well, the first guy that I started working with was Clyde Frazier because I was in the restaurant business and, and I had hired him to do some help with this sports bar. Keith, Ron, he used to play basketball with Ron Darling all the time at the downtown athletic club. And Keith and Straw would come down. They would, came to visit me at the Hard Rock. And that in those days, the Hard Rock had so many celebrities go in. Nobody cared about the athletes, except I did. So whenever they would come, they would, you know, Brandon, can you get us in? Yeah, no problem. Because nobody cared. But I cared. So when I went to the sports bar business, I got them in and, and we became really good friends. They would invite me to parties. And so I was kind of friendly with them before we got into the business part of it. And then when I started getting in the business part of it, I just tried to find little avenues of how I could help them. So with Keith, it was when he went to Cleveland, he got traded. I did his fan mail. All the mail was coming in. I took care of a lot of his personal stuff. There was another athlete. I won't mention his name. It was a stupid little thing, but I needed to get him a second phone, a cell phone at that time. They were just coming out. So I got him an actual cell phone and a beeper, and I put it under my name, my account. And that, was, that was the most dangerous thing I did, but it was important to him. He had this extra phone for different reasons. You, know, you just just try to become a problem solver. A lot of the athletes I became friends with at the beginning was more about me helping with their charity events, trying to help them facilitate raising money for their foundations. Uh, one athlete, Dave Winfield, I started working with early on. He had just come out with a book. So I was helping him market and PR the book. You know, everybody needs help. You know, you got to, in order to fill yourself, you got to forget yourself. I always say that. And I think it's just really important to concentrate on the other person's needs the other person's problems and be a solver. And then things just tend to work out from there. I think it's fantastic. And I think what you've been able to do to help all these athletes, especially here in the New York city area, and what you've been able to do for the communities, I think is also one of the most important parts. So we were kind of joking a little bit before about maybe, Hey, we'll get into business together. We'll start up a nice little course for high schoolers so they can understand how to, uh, how to make a couple of bucks and at least turn $1 into two. But I mean, the, the real aspect of that is, I mean, you're an author, you're a speaker, you're, television show host on the yes network i mean you've been doing stuff for a while specifically the author and the speaker side i know you know when we had our conversation a couple months ago you know soapbox was always your thing and your mom was a huge influence there to help you become a speaker but i'd love if you could tell it again to this audience and just give a little understanding of where that speaking background came from and why you've always wanted to kind of put your thoughts down on a piece of paper so other people can kind of consume them and learn from it well you know, listen, I've always enjoyed the speaking, even, you know, even when I was hardly the best student, but I always won the you know, treasurer of my high school and vice president of my middle school. But, you know, I enjoy the speaking. Some people can get up. I mean, I never had a problem getting up in front of 500 people, even as a kid and killing it. Um, and what I what I like about the speaking is it pushes me to be, you know, because I think if you're going to go speak. I think you should be knowledgeable and be an expert on something. I mean, so pushes me to be on top of my game. So the speaking, as much as I am doing that to help people, which I am, especially at this juncture of my life in the last 15 years for sure, it also is to give myself self-motivation. It keeps me on top of my game. because so I feel like every time I get in front of a group, I have to share something interesting and take the game to another level. So it's constantly searching for better, different, unique motivation or angles of how I, even I did some of the things I did because I'm not sitting here paying attention to, to some of the things I'm doing, the success that I've had. I, since I started these two new companies, I really have paid attention to how I'm going about this because I realized that I'm not a normal person. I was never a normal kid, which is really important. I don't think most of us aren't normal, but I was extremely very weird kid. So I'm really going through the process of trying to learn how I built those other companies some of them failed. Some of them did really well. And I'm going through this process with these new companies because I really want to share it with people. I know a lot of people out there want to build new companies or they want to out, you know, build out their existing companies. There's a lot of people struggling to grow their companies. And I really, now that I'm going through this, really want to articulate that when I start speaking again when, when we're allowed to. I think that my, what problems me about a lot of speakers is that there's a lot of professional speakers that... They've never done anything like, you know, they're book speakers and there is a lot to be taught by book speakers, but 
I just think it's great when you, I, I, I always feel like I got an obligation that if you've done something and you're extraordinary at it and you've done really well at something, you should share those stories with people and pass it down and pass it up. And because I think there's a lot to be gained by the people out there. Why keep it to yourself? And so I've always felt when I've learned something that I felt was me worthwhile and want to share it. And I wish that more people would do that because there's some really talented, successful people out there that never get out and share those stories. And we're missing, like, uh, it's like a library that's closed. And I always feel like this library, you know, what I've learned in the sports business, which I'm not sure that somebody can kind of, you know, run through like the way I did in the 90s and 80s. I want to keep the library open. You know, I want people to know, I want kids to know how to do it, how they can go meet a Derek Jeter, how they can go meet a Mariana Rivera, how you go get relationships started. Because obviously I have a unique way of doing it. And a lot of it I learned from my mom and from some other mentors. And I think it's important. You have to, if you're not passing down that information, why, like how good is it just, you know, bottled up to yourself? Because if you pass it down to someone else and they start doing it in a better way that maybe you never thought about, now you could be you can improve upon that now, and you know if you're just keeping it within yourself, it's not there's not as much room to expand. Well, I, I, I would what, I, what you just said, I would say it like this: you have to remember why we're here, and you know a big part of why we're here on this earth is to help each other. So if all you're doing is helping yourself and filling your own pockets, that's a really thin, shallow life you're living in my mind. And uh, I'm not saying that you should give away every key secret and everything you've ever done. I probably have. I've probably been a little more transparent about a lot of things that I've done, good, bad, and indifferent. Some of the, some of the problems I've had, everything else in my books. But we, why are you here? You, you, we're here to help each other, to grow, make each other feel better, help each other do more. That's got to be a part of your diet and your DNA every day. Like if it's not, you're really missing a big part of life. Yeah, and that's why you're the speaker and the author and not me. So hopefully uh, in, in another 30-something 30, 30 years, I'd be able to to get something like that just like you. But give me some time, and I think uh, we'll get I there. I think you then. got it in you, and you're doing it now. That. You know, Listen, if you don't have the knowledge, and that's why I started my blog. Like I was bankrupt on the on a whole bunch of things, on my health, on my faith, I was, you know, a lot of things. And I started what you're doing. I had a live pod and a live show, and I interviewed some of the smartest people I could find. And part of the process was sharing what those smart people had, which is, which is a cool thing. And I'm learning myself, you know, about sleep, exercise, nutrition, relationship building, sales. I mean, I did over 250 pods in like three years, interviewing everybody on the moon, sun, and stars. And that's really my third book, Living on Purpose. It was like, wow, I can't believe how little I knew at 50 years old. And I, I wanted to send a memo out to the people that were getting a little older, like, don't think you're that smart. I know you're a little tired. You've been doing what you're doing for a long time. But when you read this book, it's going to reset you. And that's what I love about the third book. It's, that's another book that's not a sports book necessarily. It's got some sports stuff in it. But it really is a wake-up call to people in their 40s. Or if you're interested even in your 30s about preparing for what's going to happen in your 40s and 50s, Living on your purpose is like a must book you have to read. And that's the problem is that kids, are, you know, people when they're in their 20s and 30s are so absorbed with their life now, what happened yesterday and today. None of them are planning for what's going to happen 10, 15 years from now. But when you talk to a 15-year-old, they're definitely absorbed with being a 20, 25-year-old, thinking ahead, wondering where they're going to school, what profession they're going to have. But they're never thinking about it. So after you figure out the profession, you're really successful. Well, now what are you going to do? And that's why people in their late 40s and 50s struggle, because they put no time and strategy into planning out what they really wanted to do when they grew up. So when you say to a kid that's 12 years old, what do you do when you want to grow up? Oh, I want to be a police officer. Oh, I want to be a real estate. I want to be a banker. No, no, that's what you want to do for a living. What do you want to do when you grow up? Which is with the success you have, because you're going to be a, the best police officer, the best developer, the best banker. What are you going to do when you grow up? What are you going to do with the money and the influence you have from that to make this place better? That's the grown-up answer you're looking for, but nobody talks about that. So what do you want to do when you're 50? Oh, but that's a conversation where you can have the most influence and have the most effect is when you're getting in your 40s and 50s. Nobody wants to talk about it until it's too late. Well, hopefully just my two cents on it, but I like those cents, man. That's why that's why I keep having you back on, right? I mean, it's you know, hopefully when I'm fifty, 
I can keep having conversations with you and we can keep spreading all this knowledge and this positivity and all this information to the people. How's that My sound? friend, hopefully, hopefully <laughs> it's what you do in synagogue on Saturday and church on Sunday. If you want it to be, we'll hang out when you're 50 and we'll keep talking about this stuff. I Why hope not? In that case, mark it down on your calendar. Exactly. Um, put it down in uh, another 30-ish years, 32 years. I mean, that's what, 92-year-old Brandon? I mean, that should be open. fun. Should, I hope in 2050. Yeah, give or take. I'm wide open. Give or take. I mean, with the way 2020's gone, with the with the way 2020's gone, maybe maybe we'll plan only a couple years in advance. But I definitely think uh, 90 year old Brandon's going to be just fine there. Um, just a couple more questions, man. Again, I always love these conversations. I always love the fire, the energy, the expertise you bring. I'm excited to get all those books, put them in the show notes, so everybody out there can go buy each of them. Uh, especially well, you get it for free on my website. I'm going to make sure to get those the middle links. Of July. I'm going to make sure to get those links so everybody gets to hang out with those books and hopefully, again, spread that positivity. That's what we're here to do today. But I do want to talk a little bit about now what you're doing. As you said, it's a lot of the same. It's just a little different. Now you're kind of, I don't not starting over, but, you know, definitely restarting again. You know, you have the Steiner Agency. Now you have Collectible Exchange. What are you doing differently this time, knowing those 30, 35 years you've done in the past? How have you taken all that information, all that expertise, all that wisdom that we've been talking about? And how have you utilized it to jumpstart these two new businesses that you've been running for the last couple of years? I'm still in the process, you know, of trying to absorb all that and, and convert that. But it starts with the same way I started the first businesses, which is be a solution-based business person. You know, I found a solution for a lot of these celebrities. And that's uh, the next launch is, you know, creating all these websites for all these different players that they can control and own their own content and own their own products and sell their own products. Uh, I'm trying to find the disruption of what really what fans and collectors really want, which is they want to be able to trade and sell. What collectors really want is they want to be able to sell something that they fell in love with 10 years ago, and they want to sell that so they can buy something else. That's what collectors do. You never lose. Like I, I just, so I, I'm selling a lot of my stuff, and every other day I want to buy something else. And it makes it a lot easier for me to buy something else when I'm able to sell it. And I realize there's no platform. For people out there that have a lot of stuff that they collect, there's no platform for people to find out what they have and what it's worth. So you got to be a solution-based business person. I'm going right back to basics, and that's what Collectible Exchange does. I think on the agency part, what I'm realizing now, again, here's the curveball, which is, oh, there are no events. So it's not easy just to put an athlete into a PR capacity, doing a, a PR, uh, you know, doing a PR stint or have an athlete go and speak. So you got to get into the virtual thing. But what I'm doing is attacking brands that are heavily, uh, a lot of their business is done digitally. So all of a sudden, if you're a company that's doing a lot of your business digitally, and that's the premise of your business, to go get an athlete to go support you online and digitally, now's the time. Because athletes are more available. They may be looking, celebrities are looking to make a little bit more money. And you can go pick up an athlete or a celebrity now uh, because of some downtime that could give you a tremendous pop that normally under normal circumstances, they'd be too busy or didn't really want to be involved. Now, since their schedule is a little lighter and some schedules are being canceled, celebrity-wise and TV shows, nobody's filming, you may be able to get a really popular celebrity involved with your digital campaign, your digital marketing, your online platform. So what I've been doing is going to all my clients and saying, hey, if not now, then when? Like Now's the time where you can go get a celebrity that probably would have cost you two or three times the amount but maybe you get maybe you jump on this now. And that's what I've been selling, you know, figuring out ways to use athletes virtually. You know, hey, you can't get to your clients, you can't get them on the phone, things are a little hectic. Do something for their kids. Why don't we do a virtual clinic online that's only available to athletes? I mean, only available to clients and their kids. Now that now dad who's parenting has got to be an all-time most difficult time right now we're going through. Now dad comes to dinner or mom comes to dinner and says, guess what? I got a client actually that's made this clinic available. So tomorrow they're going to show you how to play volleyball or basketball in your backyard. So we're trying to come up with solutions that, you know, keep people in touch with each other uh, and, and make sense. And if you think about it, there's always a way. If you sit there watching TV all day, worrying about all the things you can't do, it's definitely going to get in the way of the things you can do. If I hear another grad, call me up and say, oh, my God, I know the economy is bad. It's going to be really difficult to get a job. Well, if that's what you're thinking, more than likely that's what's going to happen. 
But just so you know, as many companies, and there are a lot of companies that are in serious trouble, and it's not to disregard or disrespect the fact that there are some struggling people out there, but there's some people booming. I mean, just killing it. I mean, I know right now I'm, I'm, I'm putting together an incredible uh, kids gift line of product, sports kid, you know, when a kid's born, I'm going to have the best, best items, collectibles for a kid that's just born because I figure in this three-month debacle, there's got to be an amazing amount of kids going to be born come next December, January, right? I mean, there's got to be a lot of conception going on here. I mean, I'd like to think. So there'll probably be a ton of kids being born at the end of the year, right around Christmas. I'm going to have a whole product line ready. So there's a lot of businesses that are doing very well, and you've got to fish where the fish are. That's a brilliant way of thinking about it, man. I mean, it it makes sense. When someone says something like that out loud, it's like very obvious. Like, well, yeah, of course. But the fact that you're, as we were talking about before, everyone's got a great idea, but it's the actual execution of that idea is what's going to set you apart from everyone else. Because, you know, you talk to someone every day. Oh, you know, this is going to be a great idea. It's like, all right, well, it's a great idea, but everyone's got a million dollar idea. But how many take those million dollar ideas and turn them into? Shoot, I mean, again, just really appreciate you coming on, Brandon. It's been absolutely fantastic. I mean, again, you know, I I don't get this opportunity very often uh, to become, you know, one degree away from Mariana Rivera. So I think that part's pretty darn important. But no, I think, again, what you've been able to do, what you're continuing to do, uh, sincerely appreciate your time. Sincerely appreciate your effort and all this. Thank you again to Barbara for putting us in contact and getting everything together. So, yeah, man. I mean, you're you're incredible, and you know, hopefully, as a, not hopefully, in 30 years when our calendars kind of uh, you know clear up a little bit, hope, uh, I, I expect us to sit down and and maybe have a few beers or, or, or a few cocktails. How's that sound? Sounds perfect, man. Look forward to seeing you grow, and look forward to keep, keep killing it online, man. You're doing a good job. Thank you for having me. Doing my best, Brandon. I appreciate you. I'll talk to you soon, man. All right, man. Have a good day. Stay safe. You too.